How could the history of World War I help us navigate today's current political climate? What were the factors that influenced the start of World War I? What were the defining characteristics that made it unique? How did nationalism play a role in this war? How did World War I end? And what lasting effects do we still feel today? What is the Treaty of Versailles? And how did it influence the rise of World War II? We'll answer these questions and many more in today's episode, A Brief History of World War I. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Allie Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. So much has been written and produced about World War II. Countless movies, historical fictions, biographies, documentaries, and for a good reason. World War II is a very important war, and we feel the ripple effects of that war to this day. But what about World War I? It was once called the Great War and the war to end all wars, but unfortunately, that has not been the case, right? While World War I is often in the shadow of World War II, it's a very important war to know about because it shapes everything leading up to World War II, which then in turn influences the world that we know today. So if we're looking at the world at large, you know, the big world stage, World War I set a lot of gears into motion that continue to influence the world. And the basic concepts that led up to the start of the war and the decisions that were made in the aftermath are still very applicable in today's issues. So as you're listening, be thinking about how this applies to today's society, politics, even your own community, and how we can learn lessons from the past so we're not doomed to repeat them. I made this episode for folks who aren't World War experts or lifelong historians, but rather, you know, they're people who want to refresh on this critical time in history and aren't necessarily going to pick up a massive history nonfiction to regather the basics. So I spend the most time in this episode on the beginning of World War I and the end of World War I because I think some of the best lessons are found in those times. And think of it as a primer episode to give you kind of a skeleton of World War I, and then you can find what interests you and go do some of your own digging. There's a lot of history here. I leave a ton out, right? I barely scratch the surface. And so many excellent resources are available. I share some of those on my Patreon, where each episode I give additional resources to help you deepen your knowledge of the subject of that episode of the month. You also get to listen to episodes ad-free if you're a Patreon member. So if you want to sign up for Patreon, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash wiserworldpodcast. All right, World War One. Let's do this. World War I happened from 1914 to 1918, and the final peace treaty was signed in mid-1919. So 
over 100 years ago now. And at the time, it was called the Great War. I mean, nobody knew that there was going to be a number two coming along shortly after. So this war is roughly four years long, and it's called the First World War because it really was fought all over the world. The war itself was fought between two major alliance groups, the Triple Entente, which is often known as the Allies or the Allied Powers. That's what I'm going to call them in this episode. And the Central Powers. This is the other side. They're sometimes known as the Triple Alliance. So I'm going to call them the Allied Powers and the Central Powers because that's what I was taught. But they do go by different names. Triple Entente for allies and also Triple Alliance for the Central Powers. The main countries of the Allied Powers were France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and very late in the game, the United States. The Central Powers mainly were Germany, Austria-Hungary, which at the time was a huge empire. We're going to talk about that. The Ottoman Empire, which controlled a lot of the Middle East at the time. And Italy at the beginning of the war. Italy switched sides, actually, pretty, pretty early on in the war, actually. And we'll talk about why that was in a minute. Despite these being the major players of the war, there were other countries involved, right? These countries had influence in many countries around the world. And so, again, this war was fought or all around the world, but large majority of it was fought in Europe. And a lot of different countries aligned themselves with one side or the other. And I'm not going to mention them because they weren't as major of players. But for example, just to give this a little airtime, did you know that Japan aligned itself with the Allies in World War I? I? I actually didn't know that. Anyway, sometimes in history, you'll hear this word called theaters. You know, there's theaters of conflict. And World War I was fought in multiple theaters. There was the Western Front. This was in the Western part of Europe. The Western Front was several hundred kilometers long. Trenches were built in this area, and they ran from the North Sea in Belgium to the Swiss border in France. So the Western Front was on the Western side of Europe. Then there was the Eastern Front. This was the battlegrounds in the Eastern part of Europe, mostly between Germany and Austria-Hungary and Russia in the East. There were also battlegrounds in Italy, as well as in the Balkan states, which are the countries that sit on that peninsula between Italy and Turkey. Africa also saw some of the conflict because there were European colonies in Africa. The Middle East also saw some conflict because, again, the Ottoman Empire was involved in the war. For example, the British conquered Jerusalem during World War I, which we talk a lot about in the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict 101 episodes. If you haven't listened to those yet, the history of that area, I dive pretty deep into that. There were also many naval battles in nearly every ocean. Hopefully you can see by now this truly was a global war. Never before had a war been fought on such a scale. So naturally, the impact was pretty immense. So let's talk for a minute about the lead up to World War I. I feel like, again, there are valuable lessons here to show us how things escalate. And then also the post-war era. Very, very interesting. So let's when you're listening to this, be thinking about pattern recognition. We talk about that a lot. Pattern recognition is so important when we're talking about history and current events. So if we look at the state of the world before 1914, what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at a world that has changed drastically in a relatively short period of time. The prior 100 years had seen a massive change in Europe. The Industrial Revolution had changed everything. Now we have steam power, railways, iron and steel production, factories for increased productivity. We have the rise of urban cities. All of these 
affecting European countries and other nations throughout the world. And each country handled the Industrial Revolution differently. Some did more, you know, they made more money than others. This could, you know, this allowed them to start making more military equipment with all of this new technology that was being invented. Airplanes, for example, were barely an invention in 1903. So, Think about it. For all the history leading up to this point, mass production of weapons and bullets and technology surrounding military hadn't really been a thing. And now there's this whole new world opened up by factories and mass production. And to add to that, again, we're looking at the global stage here. There's also imperialism or colonialism. There was a European scramble for various areas of the world, especially Africa and Asia, to establish colonies and in these areas to use resources and also to have strategic advantages over each other. And many countries like the UK, Germany, France, Italy, I mean, these countries had full-blown empires. There was a saying that the sun never set on the British Empire. And that's because, again, they had colonies all over the world. The competition for colonies made the relationships between these European countries, you know, kind of tense. There were rivalries, right? So these European countries have been working together or to some degree or other competing against each other in this environment of pretty remarkably accelerated growth for quite some time now. The world had never seen that amount of growth that quickly and the major players in World War I had all experienced rapid industrialization and the economic competition was fierce, which again, naturally is going to lead to tension. That's just one piece of the puzzle, though. These European countries always were and still are unique from each other. They have distinctive cultures and traditions and beliefs and ethnic groups and different languages. And even though Europe is a relatively small continent, within that space, there are a lot of cultures. And as these countries developed economically, spread their influence around the world, it became more common for people to have more intense pride in their country or in their culture or with their ethnic group. Because many of these countries were trying to assert themselves on a world stage, there was kind of this feeling of, I'm super proud of my country. We're the best. Other countries are not the best, that kind of feeling. And that is generally called nationalism. Now, I personally believe that nationalism is different from patriotism. I think on just a definition basis, most people would probably agree with me. Nationalism is like patriotism on steroids. It's like staunch nationalists believe that their country can do no wrong. While patriots love their country, they're proud of their country, but they also recognize the drawbacks. So you can love being Swedish, love living in Sweden without thinking that Sweden's better than every other country, right? And having love of country, wanting self-determination and independence that's, I think those are good things, personally. But at this time, there was such an increase in cultural and national identities that finding common ground and working together became less and less of a focus. And there was a lot more of us versus them thinking that mentality was really rampant during the time before World War I. Sounds a bit familiar to what we might be experiencing today, doesn't it? Additionally, in the 1800s, several European states went through processes of unification. For example, Germany and Italy, both of those countries didn't used to be, you know, the boundaries that we know today. And in the 1800s, they once were various smaller states and then were unified into kind of cohesive nations that we now see as, you know, Germany or Italy today. So these unification movements 
also influenced nationalist feelings. There also were certain European countries that were asserting dominance over others, not just outside of Europe in colonies, but also within Europe. So let me give a great example of this to set the stage. So Austria-Hungary was an empire at this time that covered either all of or parts of the countries that we now call Slovakia, Poland, Austria, Slovenia, Croatia, Hungary, Ukraine, Romania, and Bosnia-Herzegovina, which actually it added parts of Bosnia, it, it annexed part of that into their empire in 1908. So not that long before World War I, because World War I started in 1914, right? So Parts of these modern-day countries that we now see, they were all, either all of them or part of them were part of the Austria-Hungary Empire. And on the southeast border of this empire is the country of Serbia, which considered itself to be a Slavic nation. Now, the Slavic, the Slavic ethnic group is one of the largest and most diverse cultural groups in Europe, with Slavic people mostly living in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Their languages are similar to each other. They share common cultural heritage. They have common historical background. I'm not going to go really deep into it, but Serbia considered itself a Slavic nation and wanted to unite the South Slavic people to be a single political and cultural identity, kind of like a South Slavic state more or less. Okay. So kind of like Slavic nationalism, to put it simply, like pride of the Slavic culture. And Serbia and Russia were tight. They were close. Russia considered itself kind of the protector of the Slavic nations in the Balkans. Now, Austria-Hungary is right on the border with Serbia, right? So Austria-Hungary is not too keen on this idea because Austria-Hungary has a significant Slavic population. And so national movements, nationalist movements like this in Serbia could potentially destabilize the Austria-Hungarian Empire because it had a lot of ethnicities in that empire. So it's getting nervous here, right? Russia was also a threat to its power in the region, and tensions were very high between Serbia and its nearby countries and the Austria-Hungary Empire. So you can see how like this national Slavic tension, it's high. One last thing to think about is that in the 1800s, mass printing became a thing. And refining the process of printing newspapers for the masses happened in the latter half of that century. So all of these people are getting information from newspapers and pamphlets. And this was a rel relatively new thing. All of these new nationalist ideas were more and more easy to get out there. And people were able to be more influenced by mass media than probably any other time in history. And along this vein, there was also a lot of social unrest because of all this economic improvement being made. And so economic injustice was also being showcased. Some leaders thought that war would stimulate economic growth, create employment, unify their nations around a common goal. So we are seeing increased nationalism, increased tension between countries. There's more information being passed around, true or untrue. There's colonial competition. There's cultural uniqueness. There's unification going on in some countries. There's all, This is all on the tail end of the Industrial Revolution. There's a lot going on here. And threats start getting thrown around, and some nations begin to form alliance system. So countries are making deals with each other. We'll back you if you back us. The idea was if we team up, we can prevent aggression. And this isn't necessarily wrong if you're thinking about prevention. However, 
with a big web of alliances, that also can lead to a domino effect when the first shot's fired, right? And that's exactly what happened in World War I. So what was the tipping point to actual war? We can see things are escalating, but what makes things go bad? That's next. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so here we are at the tipping point. Do you remember how Serbia was interested in this kind of pan-Slavic ideology about uniting Slavic peoples and Austria-Hungary was annexing Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1908 and this was upsetting things. Things are tense between these countries. Well, on June 28, 1914, a Bosnian Serb nationalist shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who happened to be the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. I've been trying to think about who to compare this to in today's speak, but I can't really come up with the right comparison. But just know it's a big deal when this archduke is assassinated. Austria-Hungary blamed Serbia immediately and issued an ultimatum, giving them a list of demands. And Serbia did some of those demands, but it didn't quite meet all of the demands. And so one month later, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Now, because of the nature of alliances, especially at this time in history, it was, again, like a line of dominoes were set up, and this was the first one to go, and so the others immediately fell down too. Chain reaction. Russia supported Serbia, and Germany supported Austria-Hungary. And Germany had other issues to its west, namely France. France and Germany had a long-standing rivalry, and, and, and Germany had also annexed some land from France in the 1870s in a war, and France was still bitter about it. 
Germany, like many countries, had been building up its military during this time and had predicted a conflict with both France and Russia. So it had even made a military strategy that if it had to deal with the two-front war, it was going to invade France immediately through Belgium. Kind of like we got to knock out France right away and then move on to Russia in the east. Well, when Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, Russia supported Serbia, Germany supports Austria-Hungary, Germany knows, okay, it's going to end up in a war with Russia. And so it declares war on Russia. And then this military strategy fell into place. And Germany declared war on France two days later in August. And the German argument was that there were French troops at the border and they were acting in self-defense. Germany invades Belgium to get to France. And since Belgium was neutral, this was like a big no-no, right? Great Britain had made a treaty in earlier years, like 1839 earlier years, that honored Belgium as neutral. And so when Belgium was invaded, Britain honored that agreement and then declared war on Germany. So you could just see like, boom, boom, boom. We have a lot of countries entering into a large-scale conflict in very quick succession. We have the Allies, France, Russia, and the United Kingdom. And then we have the central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and at first, Italy. Italy got involved largely because it wasn't friendly with France, who had a lot of territories in northern Africa, very close to Italy. The Ottoman Empire also joined a few months later with the central powers. The Ottoman Empire had been on a decline for some time, and this war was seen kind of as a way to boost the economy, revitalize their power in a region where they were losing power. At this time, the U.S. remained neutral, though it did favor the Allies, especially Britain and France, and sold them war supplies, gave them loans. So they had an economic relationship with the Allies far more than the Central Powers. The U.S. does not stay neutral forever, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. All right, so the war has begun. Let's talk a little bit about what made World War I unique. What are some of the things that defined World War I? This is obviously wildly subjective. I'm sure every World War I history could give you a different answer to which things are the most critical. But there are some big things that have really stuck in my mind over the years are good anchor points for me in associating World War I. So I'm going to share those. The first, I would say, is trench warfare. When the Germans invaded Belgium to get to France, right at the beginning of the war, French and British troops were able to hold off that German advance, and it quickly turned into a stalemate. Sure, you know, guns had been used for a while now, but with technological advances like machine guns, things had changed, and so the military had to use new tactics. Both sides began digging trenches, usually deep enough for a man to stand up in, kind of like hallways dug into the ground. And over time, there became it became a really elaborate trench system built up on the Western Front, which is relatively flat land. That's also influenced why they dug trenches. They'd shoot at each other and try to make advances, but it was incredibly difficult to break enemy lines this way. Between the trenches was what was called no man's land. This was a barbed, wired, booby-trapped mess. From everything I've read, it sounds like life in the trenches was pretty unbearable. Sanitary conditions were abysmal. Rats ran all over the place. Diseases spread extremely quickly. 
And, you know, sitting in soggy and cold conditions in leather boots led to something called trench foot, which is basically that the tissue on the soldier's feet began to deteriorate. It caused nerve damage. Sometimes trench foot got so bad that soldiers' feet were amputated. So life in the trenches sounds pretty hopeless. This was on the Western Front especially. Another defining characteristic of World War I was the use of more modernized weapons, such as airplanes, U-boats. Another word for U-boat is submarine. Automatic, automatic weapons like the machine gun. Also, tanks. All of these things were very new for the time period and created an entirely new way of waging war. I mean, if you think about it, wars had been fought for thousands and thousands of years, but never below the surface of the ocean or above it in the skies. And tanks, like just think about tanks. World War I saw the first large-scale use of tanks, which made the way you waged a battle and the way you defended yourself a very, very different from the past. So it's learning on the ground. It was a completely different ball game. You know, when I stop and think about it, it is so astonishing how many things have changed in the last 120 years in history. It's mind-boggling the advancements that we've experienced and will probably continue to experience. And World War I was one of those times when it was all happening very quickly and all that technological advancement was being learned in the moment, you know, right on the battlefield. 1915 and 1916 were marked by large battles that had enormous cost of human life. While the Western Front was in a pretty static trench warfare situation, the Eastern Front was much more fluid. It had a lot more wide open territory on that side. Russia put up a good fight, but Russia was having a lot of internal upheaval during this time. It was on the tipping edge of revolution. So Russia took some significant hits by the Germans on the Eastern Front and the the Central Powers ended up with a lot more wins on that side. Also during these years, the British Royal Navy set up a naval blockade against Germany, which made it very difficult for food and essential supplies to enter Germany. The idea was to weaken Germany as much as possible, and it definitely succeeded. The civilians of Germany suffered terribly. Feeding the population became a severe issue. It's believed that almost a million German civilians died during World War I from just starvation. Germany retaliated to this blockade by using unrestricted submarine warfare. It would target both military and civilian boats, so it would sink merchant ships who were carrying goods to and from Britain. And the Lusitania is one of those examples. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. So you can see there's retaliation, retaliation, retaliation. In May of 1915, there was a British ocean liner carrying passengers off the coast of Ireland, and it was torpedoed by a German U-boat. Again, that's a submarine. When it sunk, over a thousand people died, including 128 Americans. This didn't really help the Germans in their relationship with the United States, and Americans started to see Germany in a less favorable light. Around this time, Italy also switched sides and joined with the Allies. So, this blockade and unrestricted submarine warfare were brutal on both sides. When 1917 rolls around, everyone's been at war for about two and a half years now, and things are looking pretty rough for the Allies. Russia is in a full-blown revolution at this point. I have episodes on this called the Russian Russia 101 episodes if you want to learn more about it. But 
This was the time when the czar or the king of Russia essentially was overthrown and Russia became communist. So in 1917, that was a big year. Russia was very unstable and the allies were not doing well. And remember, Russia was on the allies' side. In January of 1917, British intelligence intercepted a secret telegram that showed that the German foreign minister was trying to make a deal with Mexico against the United States. So Mexico had lost a lot of territory to the U.S. in the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. So in this telegram that Britain intercepted, Germany's basically saying, hey, Mexico, if you make an alliance with us and we win this thing, we can get you all that territory that you lost. Well, Britain intercepted the telegram and let the United States know. And the U.S. was not happy. I mean, Mexico is its southern border, and that's a little too close to home. Not to mention that the U.S. was still mad about German unrestricted submarine warfare. So in April of 1917, the United States declares war on Germany and enters World War I. This was a turning point in the war. It was a huge boost for the Allied front, which was flagging. I mean, at this point, everyone's so exhausted in Europe. They're toast. They're all super tired. And then all of these young, fresh American boys show up and the morale completely changes on the Allied side. In fact, American soldiers were often called the doughboys. Some say this is because they looked like fried dumplings (laughs) compared to the scraggly European boys who had been at war for years. So fresh troops from the U.S., money from the U.S. revitalizes the Allied side. Additionally, in late 1917, Russia withdrew completely from the war and shortly after a treaty was signed between the Central Powers and the new Russian government, the Bolshevik government, that ended the war on that side. Russia lost a lot of territory to the Central Powers. So the war was over on the Eastern Front, but this made 1918 a big year to determine the war. And there were some massive battles fought that year. The Allied Powers which at the time, basically Australian, British, Canadian, French forces, they launched what is now called the Hundred Days Offensive, which was a series of offensive attacks against the Central Powers that were very successful. And over time, Germany became exhausted in 1918, not to mention that the German population was super unhappy because of the blockade, causing massive food shortages, In Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, there was a lot of internal unrest, making these empires look like they were on the verge of collapse. And in early November of 1918, the leader of Germany abdicated his position, and days later, an armistice was signed, which officially ended the fighting. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson pushed for peace based on what he called his 14 points, basically calling for self-determination, open diplomacy, creation of an international organization that would hopefully prevent future conflicts called the League of Nations. The Central Powers accepted these conditions and an armistice was signed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. So November 11th, 1918. And this began the long road to a peace treaty that took another seven months to pull together. All right, so we've reached the end of the fighting. Now let's talk about the effects that happened after World War I. We don't know exactly how many people passed away during World War I, but we do know that it's a staggering number. The most that had ever happened in such a short amount of time in history up until that point. 
It is believed that between 8 and 10 million soldiers died in the war. Russia had the most, with over 2 million soldiers passing. And then Germany with 1.8 million, France with 1.3, then Austria-Hungary with around a million. The UK had around 880,000, the Ottoman Empire somewhere around 500,000. And with the U.S. joining so late, around 115,000 U.S. soldiers died. But the overall human cost was enormous, with somewhere estimated around 20 million people dying, this including, obviously, civilians. Never before, again, in such a short amount of time had there been this cost. The scale of this is just astonishing. That's just so, so many people. It's just ah, so heavy. Let's talk next about the long road to the peace treaty, because peace treaty negotiations, they are never easy. World War I had multiple peace treaties, but probably the most famous one is the Treaty of Versailles. And it's a doozy. It was signed in June of 1919 and formally ended World War I. This treaty is a big deal for a number of reasons, but personally, I believe the biggest is that it played a significant role in setting the stage for World War II. So I'm not going to skip over this. I think there's some important stuff that we can learn here, what to do and what not to do. And if you want a good historical like muscle flex or brain flex, you really should go read the Treaty of Versailles because I'm going to leave some stuff out. But it's a fascinating look at kind of the collective psyche of the winners of this war. These peace negotiations were made between the leaders of the Allied powers. Primarily, the, you know, the major players were the U.S., U.K., France, and Italy, and then the defeated central powers, which really focused mostly on Germany. The main points of the Treaty of Versailles were, first, that the German Empire, which had been run by a king or an emperor called a Kaiser, was dismantled. It was replaced by the Weimar Republic, W-E-I-M-A-R, Weimar Republic. This was a democratic republic with a parliamentary system. If you don't know what that means, I have an episode on government systems. It's episode 26, and I explain what all those terms mean really simply. But essentially, a constitution was made, a parliament was created where people could vote, there were elected officials, there was an elected president— And to keep things simple, I'm going to keep calling Germany, Germany. But at that time, it did go by a different name. And we know now that the Weimar Republic ended in 1933 with Adolf Hitler establishing the Third Reich. But you can see here that at the end of World War I, Germany had a market, you know, had a shift from a monarchy to democracy. And Even though there are valid arguments on both sides of whether or not it was successful, it did happen. And a lot of people don't know that that happened at the end of World War I. Another thing that happened with this treaty was that colonial changes occurred. So many areas in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East that had been territories of the Central Powers were now being more or less handed over to the Allied Powers. For example, this happened with the Ottoman Empire losing Palestine to the British. We learn about that again in the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict 101 episodes. Another big thing in the Treaty of Versailles was just territory. Before World War I, Germany had taken lands from France in another war, and that land was now returned back to France. Germany lost a significant amount of territory at the end of World War I along its eastern and western borders. And this did not make Germany very happy. The treaty also required Germany to have military restrictions. In other words, they wanted to limit the German army so they wouldn't have the capacity to wage war again. Germany was also not allowed to have tanks 
or aircraft. Likewise, the western part of Germany, called the Rhineland, was occupied by Allied forces and demilitarized. Germany was also required to pay reparations to Allied powers for war damages, basically financial penalties. These were enormous, and Germany couldn't handle it, and it ended up diving into a massive depression after World War I because of these required reparations. The League of Nations was also formally created in the Treaty of Versailles, and its founding members pledged to help promote peace in the future. The last thing that I'm going to cover is a clause. So a clause was built into the Treaty of Versailles called Article 231, and this clause placed full responsibility for the war on Germany and its allies. Ugh, the infamous War Guilt Clause. This clause was a bitter pill for Germany to swallow. Having played, you know, they placed all the responsibility for the war on Germany. And this becomes a point of contention after their war, for sure. There are a lot of people who have studied the Treaty of Versailles over the years, especially being able to look back with the lens of what we now know, right? We know that this treaty did not create world peace. Sadly, another massive, larger war was underway only 20 years later, right? World War II. You know, many critics say that the Allies hit Germany too hard, that by placing so much economic and psychological burden on Germany, that set Germany up to fail, which led to general acceptance of the extreme Nazi ideology of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. You know, who's to say? Hindsight is 2020. It's a lot easier to look back and criticize leaders than it is to be in the room where it happened with the knowledge that they had at the time. So I do think it's a question worth thinking about. If you were a leader in the allied nations, you were the winners, how would you have handled this win? I mean, they had choices here. The winners had the most power in the room. They got to choose how they managed these defeated nations. How would you have handled it? What do you think is the best way to handle this kind of thing? I always loved those discussions in my classes because there's so many different opinions on this. But eventually we do know the Treaty of Versailles did not create longstanding peace. The aftermath of World War I following this was pretty substantial. For one, there was a profound economic cost. Tons of money had been borrowed and spent on the war, which led to inflation that had lasting consequences. Germany, in particular, had extreme hyperinflation in the early 1920s. The German mark was devalued so rapidly that there was a lot of instability. Economies across Europe were also very affected by this. The one country that does seem to come out of World War I pretty well off was the United States, which emerged a major economic power with a lot more oomph, you know, a lot more power than it used to have. Another one of the aftermath effects was that many of these empires had been dismantled at the end of the war. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, dismantled. Ottoman Empire, dismantled. German Empire, changed, right? Dismantled. New nations and borders were created, especially in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East. The maps were reshaped. And if you've listened to this podcast a little bit by now, you hopefully can recognize how all of this plays into politics today. When countries are occupied by new groups, have new boundaries put upon them, have different ethnic makeups than they did before, these decisions have profound effects on average ordinary people in their lives, and they often lead to unrest. In this case with World War I, that definitely was the case. Newly established nations struggled to define their new identities and there have been some kind of conflict in many of those regions ever since. 
Another effect of World War I was there were social transformations. The war influenced the way that people thought. They, you know, had to deal with that huge scale of death, of human lives lost. And existentialism became a very popular philosophical movement. It really emphasizes individualism, personal responsibility, a lot more than that. But new philosophical ways of thinking became popular in the aftermath of World War I. Also, women's suffrage movements and labor unrest all gained ground after World War I, too. But probably the largest effect of World War I was, and this is just my opinion, but that the seeds for future conflicts were sown. The Treaty of Versailles did create a lot of resentment, especially German resentment. And there were issues that never quite got resolved or were kind of laid to rest. And instead of resting, they festered. And with all of the economic issues that happened after the war, totalitarianism and authoritarian leadership became much, much more popular in some countries, particularly in Germany and in Italy with the rise of Hitler and Mussolini. The Middle East, which had been carved up again, it had new boundaries were created there, also began facing serious unrest. So those are kind of the the loose skeleton, you know, the outline of World War I, beginning, middle, end. Again, very basic, but some deeper concepts that you can chew on. I left a lot out. You know, I left out major leaders, battles, tons of individual stories that we could talk about. But I hope it gives you a little bit of a framework. There are so many great World War I resources out there. And again, Patreon members get those from me on patreon.com slash wiserworldpodcast. You know, as I've studied extra on World War I these past few months, I think my major takeaway for everyday life, just how I apply this to my own life, has been the importance of beginnings and endings, why things start and how they end and how this makes a really big difference. And it's often said that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And I think that's true. But I also like the way Mark Twain put it. He said, quote, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I can see some similar things happening in our world today that remind me a lot of the World War I era. If we look at the beginning of World War I, we see a lot of nationalism, tribalism, people joining together in particular ethnic, racial, political groups, right? And being unwilling to see a variety of opinions and welcome different perspectives. And this created isolated silos, alliances, created a domino effect for conflict. And in our day and age, you know, over a hundred years later, every person kind of has a platform with social media that makes this even more in our faces. So what I'm taking away from this is that we have to be more aware of our own personal ability to tolerate diversity of thought. And I've talked about this before, but this doesn't mean that we can't have opinions or stand up for what we believe to be true or right. But I think that it means we have to be more aware of our own ability to tolerate complexity of thought and meet people that have different ways of seeing things and being able to have more real conversations in meaningful, productive ways. Because that skill, the skill of being able to do that really can stop wars, not just big, violent, enormous wars, but also like small wars in our lives. It just makes me think about how if everyone had the ability to speak clearly, kindly, bravely with each other, 
not necessarily to change each other's minds, but just to not assault each other's viewpoints. You know, think about what the world would look like. And not only does this apply in governments across the world, we hope that our lawmakers can work together to solve problems, but it also applies in like basic friend groups, book clubs, like middle school, elementary school, high school, the way we interact with our neighbors, our communities. I believe that human beings have an enormous capacity to listen and hear each other and to be excellent problem solvers. But we also have a propensity to rush and to get angry and to close ourselves off and to just like boom, 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 domino effect. You hit my friend. I'm going to hit you back. And this leads to violent wars. We're seeing that today. We saw that in the past. But it also leads to nonviolent wars, like just wars inside of our own homes and in our own communities. And I'm just realizing that in trying to prevent wars, that requires a level of emotional intelligence and maturity that I want to have, that I want to work on, and that I also want to like foster in my home and with people around me. So I'm realizing also as we end arguments, you know, in these many wars in our lives, how we do that is important. You know, the Treaty of Versailles did not lead to longstanding peace. And so there's something to be learned from that. What did it create in Germany? It created a lot of resentment. And scholars love to debate why this is. You know, did Germany not get enough of say? Could it have had more of a say? Was that the right thing? You know, we could go on and on about that. But what I'm realizing is maybe the best way to create peace is to repair well. And when there's damage in relationships in our own spheres of influence, thinking about the way that we repair, the way that we create our own peace treaties you know, that has an effect on our lives. It has an effect on our communities and and the world at large. So I'm just walking away from this episode with more of a desire to open my mind, be a little more generous and just put the sword down and be a little more peace-minded. And I don't know, I, I hope that that made some sense because history is being made now. We're a part of it. And I think that we can probably all do a little bit better at that. So those, that's my two cents. Those are my takeaways. If you learned anything today, I'd appreciate it if you shared the episode on social media or in person, send a text to someone you love. And also, if you'd consider leaving a review, reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify really help people to find the show. So I always appreciate that. And uh, I'll be back soon. Thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, let's go make the world a little wiser. <laughs>